This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. She then realised she could end up beneath a cheap headstone or even without a headstone at all. The armed robbery squad came knocking at his door with a sledgehammer and a shotgun. She had to tell her mafiosi sugar daddy that she was pregnant. It didn't go well. I'm Andrew Rule. Welcome to another edition of Life and Crimes. Everyone knows a story about people who lead double lives. If you bring it up in any conversation, someone will say, oh yeah, there was my teacher or the policeman down the road or my uncle or aunt or somebody. But one of the most striking examples was of our colleague, Sean Carney, one of this country's finest political columnists, long-time journalist, one of the finest reporters of his generation, uh, published author, thinker, all-round top man. But surely one of the most startling and compelling things that Sean has ever written was his own memoir, a book published a couple of years ago, which was ingeniously named Press Escape, which was a very clever play on words. It turns out that Sean was an only child who grew up in the Frankston area and that he grew up in a very strained atmosphere. I think his mother was a little older than his father and probably a bit different. His mother, I think, had been a teacher and was quite an academic, refined woman. And his father was more a knockabout from the inner suburbs of Melbourne in those days. He'd been a welder who kicked on to become a salesman and was a hail fellow, well-met sort of Aussie larrikin bloke. Sean discovered, around the time he went to high school, the true reason for the tension between his parents. And that was that his father, Jim Carney, had been conducting a long-running affair for many, many years with a woman who lived a few blocks away. And when Sean discovered this, a lot of things started to make sense to him. One was that he'd looked out the window one day and seen his father fighting another man in the street outside their house. And Sean was very pleased that his father won the fight at the time. But it was only many years later that he realised what it was about. Another time, he saw this vaguely familiar local woman march up to the letterbox and deposit an envelope in it. And he went and grabbed the envelope and took it inside and handed it to his father, to whom it was addressed. And his father opened it and inside was a $2 note and a $1 note and some sort of cryptic message. And I think the cryptic message was to the effect that perhaps Mr Carney could choose between staying home and going to his lover's house. And in the end, Mr Carney, Jim Carney, opted to stay home with his wife and child. But Sean left home pretty well as soon as he could and uh, went off to start a new life as a reporter at the Herald newspaper, forerunner of the Herald Sun. And that, of course, was the beginning of a brilliant career. It took Sean some 35 years to get around to writing about this. And when he did, it was a most revealing and interesting insight into a double life. Of course, as a young man, he would have thought that it was a one in a million thing, that it was a very rare event that these double lives wouldn't crop up much. But of course, as you get older and wiser and 
knock around a bit more, you hear of more and more double lives being led by people. And of course, anybody who's had anything to do with Canberra would know that politicians have specialised in double lives. We have Cheryl Kernow and Gareth Evans. They had a secret affair for many years. We have the much-loved Labor figure, Ben Chifley, the former train driver who got to the lodge, who, it turns out, had a long-standing relationship with his secretary, Phyllis O'Donnell, and in fact died in a hotel room with Phyllis O'Donnell, his mistress. It turned out subsequently that he'd also had an affair with Phyllis O'Donnell's sister, which makes it, I think, a triple life. Of course, the public half expects this sort of behaviour from politicians, but it's the gangsters and the colourful business identities who can actually afford to have second families on the side, as if they're, you know, Genghis Khan or someone, Henry VIII. There was a recent tragedy in Melbourne in which a young doctor was killed in a road accident. And those who know the family point out that there'd been much sadness in his life because his father, a fairly prominent businessman who's made a lot of money, actually had led a double life. He had a wife and five children, which included the young man who became the doctor who was killed on the roads. And he also, it turns out, had a mistress in Essendon. And a friend of the family got wind that the businessman was selling a house in Essendon and went to the auction. And when he went inside to look at the house, he saw a photograph, a snapshot, blue-tacked to the fridge door, as we all do in families. That person was shocked to see a snapshot of a younger woman with a couple of kids and the businessman. In other words, he had two families running concurrently, and the two kids looked exactly like him. This was a shock, but not nearly quite the shock to all concerned when the businessman ran away with a 17-year-old schoolgirl from one of Melbourne's leading private schools. The schoolgirl was a friend of his own daughter. A triple life. In some families, of course, double lives are not exactly secret, but they are conducted secretively. One that comes to mind is the very famous and very wealthy Pratt family of Melbourne, Richard Pratt, a self-made industrialist, philanthropist, fabulously wealthy, amateur singer and actor, and a man of many passions. Now, as most Victorians know at least, Dick Pratt had a long-running extramarital arrangement with the mother of his young daughter. And his wife, his first and only wife, Jeannie Pratt, later said she preferred to treat it in the European way, that is, to maintain a dignified silence about her errant husband, in this case about Dick and his Sydney squeeze, a supposed model called Shari Lee Hitchcock. Not to mention their poor little rich girl, Paula, the love child who would later come to inherit something like $20 million. One figure who shall remain extremely nameless in this podcast had more mistresses than Kerry Packer. One of these mistresses was a friendly sales rep who was happy, apparently, to be number four mistress in the harem until the chilling moment came when she felt she had to tell her mafiosi sugar daddy that she was pregnant. It didn't go well 
Mr. Big gave her a very bleak message. Terminate the baby or else. I can well remember that this threat reduced this cheerful, fun-loving, vivacious, party-going young woman into a blubbering, terrified mess. She then realised she could end up beneath a cheap headstone or even without a headstone at all. What happened next? She suddenly quit her good job and moved deep into the country to avoid a man who valued his Doberman guard dogs far more than her and her unborn child. And that brings us to the story of the man known these days as Hugo Rich. Hugo Rich started life in a refugee camp in Germany in 1952 when he was born under the name Olaf Dietrich. Young Olaf grew up to be like a bad example of the Doberman dog breed. He was sleek and handsome to look at, but extremely dangerous when he turned nasty. Olaf Dietrich changed his name to Hugo Rich in 1990. Not really on a whim, but because he'd just served four years after being caught smuggling Thai heroin into Australia in condoms which he'd swallowed before boarding a plane in Bangkok. The police caught him with uh, one condom full of heroin on the sink and several others still inside him. After he got out of jail, he decided to change his name to Hugo Rich, which was sort of funny. And, of course, his criminal record vanished along with the old name. But his criminal tendencies did not. And that was the start of a double life in the underworld and outside it. Hugo, as he was now known, conned his way into working for a respectable sharebroking firm, Vinton Smith Dougal, and he was promoted rapidly, but not as rapidly as he spent whatever came his way. He splashed out on a luxury apartment in South Yarra, flash imported cars and designer suits, the whole catastrophe. And of course he spent more than he was making, which is why one day he left the office owing $33,000, quite a lot in the 1990s, and he never came back. Instead, Hugo set up his own business under a false front elsewhere and offered advice to those who were silly enough to seek it. And he called it Triple B, BBB, and the police later said that was stood for bullshit, baffles brains. Behind the scenes, behind the trappings of success and the cars and the designer suits and so on, Hugo was actually planning and pulling off a string of armed robberies. But where your basic bandit might go to the $2 shop or Aussie disposals to get a balaclava or just cut a sleeve from a Collingwood footy jumper and put eye holes in it, not Hugo. He used a silk ski mask, just like Formula One racing drivers use under their helmets. He thought he was a classy bank robber. In fact, uh, after he robbed an armour guard van of $98,000 in cash... Within a couple of hours, he went straight to a Collins Street Jewellers, the very famous store Kosminski, and he bought a diamond ring for himself for $17,000. That was the sort of tosser that Hugo Rich was and still is. Sadly for him, the glossy facade crumbled 
when the armed robbery squad came knocking at his door with a sledgehammer and a shotgun and several thirty-eights, And poor old Hugo was dragged into court, kicking and screaming. He developed a bad habit of abusing judges then and at other times in court. And there are a couple of quite interesting and sort of amusing clips available on YouTube of Hugo Rich abusing judges in court. And what happened to Hugo? Well, he got out of jail eventually. He shot an armoured van security guard dead in a robbery attempt in Blackburn North. He's still serving time for that. He'll be lucky to walk out of jail without a Zimmer frame. Of course, not all double lives are conducted by the criminal classes or by politicians. And I know this because in Far East Gippsland, there was once a doctor, well-loved by the community and his neighbours and his friends and his family, who decided that he could well afford to have a second family. So why shouldn't he do that? It was his idea of improving the gene pool. He would have another wifelet and some more children. And what he did was he had another practice, not that far from where he lived, but, you know, a couple of hours' drive. And about halfway towards that practice, he established a small horse property run by a young woman with whom he was very friendly. And that young woman bore him a son, a good-looking young man, who grew up to be quite well-known around Gippsland. The young man, of course, did not know that his father had another family in a town an hour or so away, which made it rather interesting when he ran against a girl from that town who actually was his own half-sister. And they became quite good friends, although luckily it didn't develop into a romance. Double lives take many forms, and in the end... They're sad, they're tragic, they're sordid, they're rarely funny. This is one of those that is tragic and sordid and not funny. Some years ago, a then young policeman was having an after-work drink with one of his colleagues, who happens to be someone I know. And this young policeman was a young married, and he starts telling his new workmate, as it was then, he's saying, oh, mate, I've got, you know, I've got the wife at home. And I've got two kids, one's two and one's one. Now I'm expecting a third one. And the drinking companion said, oh, that's great, mate. You know, you can, you can do it. You'll have three and that'll be great. Uh, you know, one of each and a spare. It's really good. Don't worry about it. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not having it with my wife. I've got Miss X down at the police station, pregnant. Oh, says the drinking companion, that's not so good. And he said, no, he said, it's not good because she's determined to have the baby. And the more I talk about it, the more determined she is to have the baby. I, of course, want her to have an abortion and she doesn't want to. And the big problem is that I don't earn that much money and I will have to support the child and it will have to come out of my wages and there's no way I can do that without telling my wife and destroying my marriage and so on. And time went on and every week this errant policeman told the sad story of how another week's gone past and his girlfriend or lover is still insisting on having this baby and it's now getting too late for anything to happen and he's going to have to tell his wife. 
And one Friday night he told his mates, he said, I'm going to have to go home and tell my wife the truth today because it's reached the point of no return and I'll just have to face up to it. Well, the following week, they all turn up at the policeman's watering hole and there he is, the copper, looking much happier than he has for about five months or six months. And he's high-fiving everybody and he's buying drinks for everybody. And I said, what's with you? What's, what's happened? I oh, said, great news, great news. She's had a miscarriage. And that was when some people decided he wasn't a very nice man. That irresponsible young copper is now a middle-aged inspector. Read my column in the Sunday Herald Sun and online at heraldsun.com.au. Hi, I'm Jen Kelly from the Herald Sun. Join me for the new podcast series In Black and White. On Monday's episode, we tell the remarkable story of the secret identity of Melbourne gentleman John Freeman, who carried to the grave a terrible secret. He'd shot at Queen Victoria and been locked away in mental asylums for 27 years. And you can listen right now to this week's episode about Big Chief Little Wolf, the famous Navajo wrestler and showman who wowed the crowds and became famous for his signature move, the Indian Deathlock. It's available on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister auntie, grandmother, it's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilant. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.